Filmmakers make films, but films make filmmakers. From blockbuster premieres to grindhouse theaters, late night cable to the local video store, there is no greater classroom for aspiring filmmakers than cinema itself. Join your host, Eric Skorzynski, as he dives deep into the minds of legendary directors, producers, actors, and more to discover their biggest influences and to explore the impact their films are leaving behind. This is Film School. Grab your popcorn. Class is about to begin. I could not do a podcast that talks about cinema and filmmaking and actors and directors without talking about directors and actors that I love to watch personally. One of those is Charles Bronson. I want to talk about his career, the trajectory of it, and the influence that he had on cinema. And joining me today to do just that is the incredible guest, Paul Talbot. He is the author of Bronson's Loose and Bronson's Loose Again, two books that chronicle Charles Bronson's career from the Death Wish films and beyond. He's also written for Video Watchdog, Psychotronic Video, and Film Facts, and has directed a film called Hellblock 13. Get ready for an awesome interview with Paul Talbot. Paul, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Glad to be here, Eric. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to talk to you. Really, I mean, about Bronson, the Death Wish series, and uh, you know, first and foremost, the fascination around Bronson. I, I got to talk about that because, you know, when I first discovered him in 2018, I was like, this is one of the most magnetic screen figures I've ever seen. Like, I just could not take my eyes off the screen anytime he was there. And I know you came across Charles Bronson by way of Elvis Presley, uh, watching movies with, with your mom. Um, tell me a little bit about what it was about Bronson that drew you in and got you so fascinated by his career and kind of what your first takeaways were seeing him on screen. Right. Well, kind of like what you touched upon. Um, I grew up in the 1970s when uh, this is before VHS, in fact, even before cable. So we had like a lot of local channels. And so I would watch a lot of movies. My mom is a big movie buff. Uh, she, we both liked uh, Elvis Presley movies. We always saw the Elvis movies when they were on. So uh, one that was on was Kid Galahad, in which Elvis plays a boxer. Charles Bronson plays his trainer. That was the first time I saw Bronson. I Again, I thought, wow, what a magnetic personality. Very interesting. And then a few days later, uh, my father's favorite movie, was on TV, which is The Great Escape. And Charles Bronson is also in that, one of his best roles. And so seeing those two movies back to back, I was really uh, intrigued by him. Uh, very incredible presence, something, a movie star that there was never anybody like him before or yeah. since. And yeah. so, like I said, this was the 1970s, kind of like the era of Bronson mania in mm-hmm. which he was this huge star. And he had already been in many films and TV episodes. So during this era, they'd be like, Tonight's episode of Bonanza, guest star is Charles Bronson. So he was always around. And then 1975, he made a movie called Breakout, and that was rated PG. I was in elementary school at the time, so I was able to walk to the neighborhood theater and see that. So that was the first theatrical movie I saw. Sentenced to 28 years for a murder he never committed. Only two things could help him escape. A lot of money and Charles Bronson. So from that point on, I was really obsessed with Charles Bronson, just saw every movie he made. And then, of course, once VHS and cable TV came on, I would rewatch all the ones. Yeah, yeah. That he was in. <clears throat> yeah, he's, he's just, it, I was trying to explain it to somebody because I, 
my wife was, you know, she, she comes in and out while I'm watching movies. And for a period, it was like nothing but Charles Bronson. Like it was just Charles Bronson movie, Charles Bronson movie, everything I could find to stream. I was like buying movies with him in them. And it just, there's something about his presence. It's how I hear people describe John Wayne, but John Wayne has never had that impact on me. You know, I've never, um, aside from Stagecoach, his introduction in that movie, you know, I get it. That's where I understand if you could bottle up who people perceive John Wayne as. But for Bronson, to me, he's one of the most interesting people to watch, no matter how bad the movie is, because he's in some movies that aren't good movies, but he's always really good in them. And I think, you know, you mentioned not always getting the credit, and we'll talk about that um, soon. But yeah, it's interesting looking at his career because he's got a hundred, you know, movies in his filmography, mainly Westerns prior to the death wish series. What is it about the death wish franchise specifically that you decided to focus on that? Cause you could have written plenty of books on the, on the Western, you know, filmography and, and the TV appearances. Why death wish? Okay. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, death wish was a huge movie. It was advertised in the yeah. newspapers, that scary black and white, ad of him holding the gun. And in my elementary school class, uh, one of the kids came in and he was saying, oh, I just saw Death Wish. And uh, my teacher was shocked. She was like, who took you to see that? And he was like, oh, my parents. And he was like, who would take a kid to see that? So before I got a chance to see it, it had this persona being a, a very scary movie. So right. like I said, that was rated R. I wasn't able to see it right away. I wasn't able to see that one till many years later on a cable TV, which, and again, it was edited for television. So sure. when I first saw that one, even the edited version really um, intrigued me because, again, I grew up in the 1970s, which was kind of a scary time. I grew up in a suburb of Boston, so mm. there was always kind of a, a dark, gritty. There was a lot of crime that we'd read about on TV and see on the news. So that movie always intrigued me. Uh, I always found it a very, uh, very scary movie. Right. And... Um, I remember one night uh, I hadn't seen Death Wish in a while. And I said, I'll watch Death Wish. This is before it was on DVD. I had to go to a store right. and find VHS tape. So I sat down and watched Death Wish. And I was like, wow, that is a really powerful, scary movie. And so I went ahead and watched, uh, and I hadn't seen two, three, four, and five in a while. Yeah. So I said, I'm going to revisit those. So again, this is before they were on DVD. I had to go to several mom and pop stores to find them. And I sat down and one weekend had a marathon. I watched two, three, four, and five back to back. And I was like, what a crazy series. How did we get from the first movie to the fifth yeah. one where they're all completely different tone? And in first, uh, especially since one, two, and three are made by the same director, but they're completely different tones. Right. So that gave me the idea. I said, I need to find out about this series, who made this. So I said, I'm going to try to interview Michael Winner, who directed one, two and three. And he lived in England at the time. And I got in touch with his um, his assistant who set me up with an interview time. And again, he lived in England. So I had to get up like at five in the morning, the time he gave me to interview him. And we talked for like an hour and um just had a fantastic interview, which intrigued me more. And I said, I'm going to keep digging and finding more about this, yeah. this series. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people forget, you know, the first death wish, because I, because unfortunately, whether you like the sequels or not, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of the sequels, but whether you like them or not, they paint how people view death wish as a title. 
So when you think of the first Death Wish, even putting it on last night, I was like, this was a real movie. Like this was a Paramount production, had a had a small budget, but it was a blockbuster, you know, movie. And, you know, obviously the canon years kind of tainted that, you know, with its own brand. And, you know, it's it's interesting though, watching that first film, how much the craft stands out. Like it is a really well-made movie. Um, and you know, my my introduction to the series was. I think it was because Death Wish 3 was streaming and the remake was about to come out. Um, I went back and I saw that one. I was like, I'll try that. If I like that movie, I'll go back and watch the other ones and get into it. And watching Death Wish 3, then going back and watching Death Wish 1 after enjoying that, it was almost, it, it, it was just a very bizarre, bizarre experience. Like, how does this happen? And then seeing it's the same director, like you said, really throws your mind through a loop. You're like, this is a very weird jump. So talking with Michael Winner, getting to hear his perspective on it, how did he approach the first movie? Because it doesn't seem like any of the tongue-in-cheek quality of the sequels is there whatsoever. Right. Well, And of course, uh, a good movie always starts with the premise, with the script. Death Wish was based on a novel by a guy named Brian Garfield. Uh, It was a very serious, almost like an anti-vigilante movie. The theme of the novel is like uh, vigilanteism isn't a solution, it's another problem. So there was a long time uh, before the movie was made. They had sold the movie rights. It had been through uh, several producers, offered to several stars. Finally, it got Michael Winner's hands, and he uh, was able to finally get it made. And, of course, Gregory Peck, Jack Lemmon, uh, lots of big-name actors at the time were offered that part and turned it down. So Michael Winner had already had a relationship with Charles Bronson, and approach Charles Bronson about it. And in fact, if you read the book, Bronson is like not what you would think of. In the book, the guy is uh, he's heavy, he's overweight, he's bald, wears glasses, you know, he's middle-aged. Whereas Bronson, you wouldn't think in that role. So they did adapt it uh, to be like Bronson, to, to fit his persona. In the book, um, he's an accountant. And so Bronson said, well, no one will believe me as an accountant. So they made him an architect for the movie. Mm. And the interesting thing is, Um, As you said, you know, it's a very gritty, very uh, almost like a dangerous movie, even in this day and age. It's because, you you know, some people look at it and say, like, it's pro it's right wing, it's pro vigilante. But it's really not. You know, as we as you as that final image shows, he's pointing the gun. This guy has really lost his mind and, you know, has really gone has really gone crazy. Yeah, he's he's a sociopath by the end of the movie. Absolutely right. This is the story of a man who decided to clean up the most violent town in the world. In the movie, the the original one, all of Michael Winner's stuff does have some humor in it. Of course, nowhere near like the later ones do. But that first one, there is a lot of interesting humor. For example, um, there's a scene in the police station where Bronson's first trying to find out, is anyone tracking down the murderers of my wife and and who attacked my daughter? And... One guy, you just see the back of his head. That's Michael Winner's voice dubs in. He says something like, have you found who tra- who kidnapped my dog yet? He he, yeah, he paints beautiful pictures yeah, with his paws. Right, yeah. Yeah. Well, so the first one does have some uh, subtle humor in it. But like you said, nowhere near like the later ones. Right, right. Yeah. It, it, one of the things, too, that stood out to me, and it was, uh, I revisited. So the first time I watched Death Wish was I, I appreciated it. And enjoyed it, but coming off of three, which is this roller coaster, it was, I didn't even know how to process it. I was like, oh, well, I really like three. I, I expected more of that with one. And then now revisiting it, 
it pushed it to where it's like, man, one was really, really good. And I almost wish we could have gotten that serious sequel if we were going to get one for it. So like I said, my ratings have gone up and down. But one of the things you mentioned in the book is the first one's very feels like a Western in a lot of ways, the way it's shot. And I didn't pick that up at all until revisiting it. And then the the comparison is impossible to avoid. Um, was that something intentional in the directing of the movie? Or was it just something that kind of happened as they started creating it? Yeah, it definitely was um, intentional. Again, the early script didn't have any of that Western um, motif or any Western influence. For example, the, the the not just the novel, but also the first draft of the script didn't have the scene where he visits the Wild West town and yeah. sees the shootout recreated. It didn't have him saying things like, do I need to get out of town before sundown? It doesn't have him saying things like, uh, fill your hand. Yeah. So that was all added by Michael Winner, the Western, um, the things tying it into the Western motif, making it almost like a modern day classic Western. Sure. Another interesting thing, um, Herbie Hancock, who did the score, during that last part where Bronson is saying, fill your hand, uh, draw, you in the music has some really subtle like horse hoofs. So it's huh. almost like adds like almost like we hear like the background of a Western town. It has like some little horse hoofs in that. So Herbie Hancock also picked up on that Western uh, classic Western film motif. Yeah. Well, now I have to rewatch it just to pick that up. <laughs> Fill your hand. Huh? Draw. But yeah, but that's the stuff that's fascinating in that first film is that there is so much detail, you know, and I, I think because, you know, it, it is, it does feel very gritty. It's easy to confuse the grit with it's people do this with Texas Chainsaw Massacre and other films. They'll say, oh, it's hand, a lot of handheld gritty but that doesn't mean poorly made. It doesn't mean lack of details. It's putting you in these situations. And there's so many layers. Like you mentioned, there's so many dubbed lines in the police station that with subtitles on, especially you're like, that's so smart. They just added these little details to enrich the, enrich the experience. Um, Looking, looking in at the, at the first movie in particular, you described it in your book as being an underrated film, which I would agree with. And also an important film. Uh, Can you kind of, describe why you think that the original film is so important and so criminally underrated. Well, uh, important because again, it captures that atmosphere. One thing Michael Winner always did or usually did, he would shoot on actual locations. So the original death wish, all of the exteriors and the interiors are actual New York city locations. They weren't even decorated. They didn't put, you know, they didn't dirty up the walls or dirty up the interiors. It was all actual locations. So it really captured the reality of that time. Also, all of the uh, the clothes were bought off the rack, you know, that we see the the criminals wear was stuff that they actually went to, you know, little stores in New York and bought. So people would be wearing at the time. And it also captures, again, what we still have today. Uh, I think it's an important film because it still captures what we have today, the incredible amount of violence we have in society. And Mm. if you want, even when you're trying to live a peaceful life, you're trying to mind your own business, things happen that really uh, change your mindset. You know, somebody might be, say, I'm opposed to violence, I'm opposed to vigilanteism. But if something like that happens to you, it puts a whole different perspective on it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Bronson, the first film, and again, it was something 
that I had forgotten before rewatching was he was a conscientious objector. They make jokes about him being this liberal and he doesn't want to own a gun and all these sorts of things. And, and, you know, it's a really interesting film that it plays on that because by the fourth and fifth, it, it does feel like that Reagan era style Rambo kind of movie. Well, the first film really plays into all of those emotions and feelings. And what I noticed the most, yes, there's violence, but the most frustrating part of the movie is it plays on how, how helpless the law enforcement system is in addressing these issues, you know, and, and for me, just context, you know, I, I host another podcast where I work with victims of sexual abuse and trauma. And so watching it, I'm sitting there going like, I feel all of the things that Bronson's character is feeling throughout. And the movie doesn't give you a clear answer as to how do we solve this? It kind of leaves it open-ended. Another scene I want to point out, the first one is the cocktail party scene. After the vigilante is on the loose, some people are saying he's doing the right thing. Some people say he's doing the wrong things. There's that brilliant cocktail party scene, which again is kind of a uh, kind of like a dark comedy scene. Everybody's giving their different opinions. And that's almost like back then we didn't have social media, whereas now we have like Facebook and Twitter where all these threads go on where everybody jumps in. So that scene kind of is almost like a pre-social media situation where everybody is gathered together spewing their different uh, viewpoints. Yeah. Another thing interesting about the first one is I'm always fascinated when people watch that who don't know who Charles Bronson is. When the film was made, everybody knew who he was. He was a legendary action star. When you watch that movie, as soon as you see him, you're like, oh, he's not going to put up with this. He's going to hit the streets with a gun. Same with if nowadays if people know who he is, they feel that way. But it's fascinating when people see that who don't know Charles Bronson, who watch it without those preconceived notions, who to sit down and don't know that the guy is going to go over the top and grab a gun and hit the streets and take things into his own hands. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I know for Bronson, especially he was, he was not the, you know, he was not the character portrayed on screen, like the action beat him up. He was a very, very reserved and even expressed concern showing that he was enjoying the killing in the movie. Um, Cause I know that final shot was a very contentious topic for him of, and you know, it made me wonder going into death wish two into three, pushing those limits. It makes me wonder how Bronson got on board with those sequels. Um, did you talk with Michael winner about that, about how he convinced because, because reading about the debate between about that ending shot, and Bronson being concerned about his character looking like he was enjoying it. And then seeing the Paul Kersey of two, three, four, and um, five. How did that, that transition kind of happen? Yeah, the, the interesting thing is when Death Wish came out in 1974, uh, it wasn't the era of sequels where, of course, nowadays, every single movie is going to have a sequel. Yeah. And the same actors are going to come back and the same director is going to come back. In 1974, when Death Wish was a hit, um, that wasn't done at the time. They were sort of thinking of it, but they didn't go in that direction. Dino De Laurentiis, the producer, didn't want to go in that direction. Bronson certainly didn't want to go in that direction. And Michael Winner did it. Michael Winner, of course, that made him a huge action director. He got all these action scripts. He turned all those down. He wanted to go back to comedy um, instead of the action films. And of course, years later, um, Winner had not had a hit since the original Death Wish. And Bronson, of course, was on a decline also. And you got to remember when the first uh, Death Wish was made, Bronson was 52 
when yeah. that came out, which is very old for somebody to become a, a major star, which is yeah. Bronson didn't become a star until he was, you know, at, at that age. So Death Wish 2 came along. Uh, Canon Films wanted to make a movie with a big name. They got the idea to make Death Wish 2, got Bronson involved. Bronson was totally opposed to it. He was not interested at all. Finally, they made him an offer he couldn't refuse with a nice piece of money. And Bronson insisted. He said, well, you have to bring Michael Winter back. I'm not going to do this unless Michael Winter directs it. So that's what brought them, yeah, brought yeah. them all together. So. Yeah, two two's a strange. I, I feel like if anything sticks out in this series, I feel like two does. Because I think two, whereas one, I think really does a good job of just being a documentary in a lot of ways. Two, I feel revels too much in the the excess of the violence. And not the violence, the the cathartic revenge, you know, that that type of violence. But the rape scenes are very drawn out. The film to me. It just feels like a misstep in in a lot of ways. And I've heard you say it's your least favorite of the series. Is that similar reason? Is that kind of where, because everything to me, even the, even the direction of it just doesn't feel on the level of the original. Right. It's and like you said, uh, Death Wish 2 is my least favorite of the series. And partly because it's so disappointing because you got Bronson back and Winter back. Yeah. So you think it's going to be taking the, the first next level in, in a different step. Instead, it's really just a, uh, a remake of the first one. And it's trying to like, almost like, you know, at the time this was the era of the really gory horror movies when the Friday the 13th were first coming out. So it's trying to like compete with that, just being really, really rough and over the top. Now I love the revenge scenes. This one's not in New York. It's shot like in Hollywood and Los Angeles, lots of fantastic actual locations. I love the scenes with Bronson stalking the, the criminals. You believe in Jesus. Well, you're going to meet him. As you said, the rape scenes are really just ridiculous. In fact, um, Eric, did you see, have you seen the uncut version of Death Wish 2? Do you know? I don't believe so, no. Okay. Because it was heavily, heavily cut to get an R rated in the U S because mm. of those uh, rape scenes, the assault scenes, the unrated version was very difficult to see. It was really like passed around on the bootleg circuit. Now it is officially on uh, Blu-ray in the United States and other companies, mm. other countries. And that unrated version of the R rated version is tough enough, but that unrated version is just really insane and over the top. Yeah. That's really um, uh, very hard to watch. And that, those scenes is what really brings the whole movie down for me and what makes it um, my least favorite of the, of the series. Yeah. It, it It's always an interesting one. And it's, it's interesting discussing it because it's always, it's one of those most subjective conversations of how much is too much and what do you show? What do you not show? And, you know, it, it's, I think everybody's limit or level or, you know, opinion is different. Um, I, I was watching, um, I was watching I Spit on Your Grave um, the other day, and as I'm reading Men, Women, and Chainsaws by Carol Glover, and she kept mentioning it, I put it off for so long because I knew what it was, you know, and, and you know, watching that movie, it's just, you're sitting there going like, I get it. And this does a great job of making me feel very uncomfortable, but I never want to watch this again. And, and that was a similar, a similar feeling with two. And I think that's why watching the series, 
three, four, and five, you know, tend to, for me, be the ones I revisit the most because, you know, one, I think is one that I'll probably revisit every year, every two years and, and check out three, four, and five. And it, it makes sense with Michael Winter wanting to go back to comedy. Three is just great fun. You know, it's, it's a really, really fun movie. Um, and you have Martin Balsam, you've got, you still have these really, really cool set pieces and just good character work over in three. Um, what's your opinion on kind of the latter half? I know you defend them as being underrated, but what are your emotions being such a diehard fan of the first? And also here's these three that exist. Well, number three, again, it was uh, disappointing at first because uh, Bronson and Winner are reunited again. I wish they had done something more serious, yeah. uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, seeing what the crime is like at the time, because this is a different era. You know, we're talking about yeah. uh, the mid 80s. So I wish they had done something like that. So it is disappointing in that respect. Also, um, that's probably the Bronson movie where Bronson comes off. uh poorly in some respect it's almost like he's not in on the joke mm. you know it's like he wasn't told that this was going to be a comedy now that being said death wish three on its own level is a absolute masterpiece as you said um i watched that one over and over every time if you, whenever you want to have a party um bring some friends over who watch that especially if they haven't seen it before they you know everybody falls on the floor that one demands repeated viewings, you know, those lines. Every time I watch the thing, even though I've seen it so many times, I still fall on the floor laughing. I have to hit the pause button, replay my favorite pots over yeah. again and things like that. Charles Bronson, Death Wish 3. First, they took the streets. Then they took it all. But their next target may be their last victim. Charles Bronson, where there is no justice, there can only be vengeance even the death wish three even being a crazy comedy um it still goes too far it does have that assault scene which again is unnecessary which puts a taints the whole you know adds a a bad level to the movie but it is still death wish three is a comedy masterpiece and yeah. the strange one strange thing about it like i said michael went always shot in actual locations one and two the interiors and exteriors were completely real locations in uh, Los Angeles and or New York. Yeah. Death Wish 3 has some stuff shot in Brooklyn, but most of it is shot on that ridiculous set yeah. made in London, which, yeah. is a, which is like a comic book version of, um, you know, New York City. It, so it, that adds that bizarre comic book element to it also. Yeah, it feels it, it feels you, you just said it there's a war zone in uh, in your book. Like it's it does. It feels it almost feels kind of like the trauma toxic Avenger kind of version of New York where it's like, everyone's got neon hair and they're driving around this rubble with jeeps. And it's, it's, it's absolutely bizarre. Um, But yeah, but I, I think, like you said, standing on its own, I think that they're, they work really well. Um, And I, I, I'm an ardent defender five and four. And I think four is probably my most revisited. It's the most absurd. um, I think of all of them, but for me, I really enjoy And I think this is one area where I, if I can disagree with you as the Bronson expert, you know, I had seen you done an interview and you said you kind of pictured one and two as being the only ones where Paul Kersey's the same character. And then you said three was kind of its own. And then the last two were kind of mechanic sequels right. for, for me, when I was prepping for the interview, I was like, one thing I love about them 
is that Bronson does stay the same and that he's not in on the joke because, you know, even the beginning of, of four, his dream in the beginning, you know, like I like those elements of Bronson that, that carry through, like it, even though it's absurd, when you really look at the timeline of all the people connected to him that have accidentally had something random, horrible happen to them. Like, I love that Bronson seems like he's carrying the weight throughout the movies of all of those events. Um, but for you, is that something that you wish, do you wish they would have just named the movie something else? Or do you wish they would have just taken it in a more serious, like if they were going to keep having all these horrible things happen over and over and over again to Bronson? Well, the strange thing is with the first movie, I don't know if you, after the first one, I don't know if you ever could make a good sequel to the first one or Mm. something that really fits the first one. Because the first one kind of like says it all. So in order to make, a sequel, you still have to be, like you said, it's kind of ridiculous that these horrible things, his friends, his daughter, every girlfriend he has, yeah. these horrible things happen to him. So I don't know how you could really make a a serious sequel to the to the, yeah. the first one. So I guess they had no choice but to kind of make him, um, uh, you know, outrageous, continuously outrageous. And all of a sudden, he, you know, he's this you know, skilled. Of course, he is an architect, so it's not that crazy. He could make right. these traps and things like that. Right, right. I, I'm, I'm curious now, like, so I came into the Death Wish franchise by way of hearing about the remake, you know, and being curious to see. All I knew was Eli Roth revenge movie with Bruce Willis. Okay, this sounds interesting. Going into the remake, have you seen it yet? I know you said you had no plans of seeing it. Do you ever end up biting the bullet? No, I never did. The reason why, you know, they had been talking about that for years, making a remake. In fact, at one point, probably the early 2000s, they were talking about Sylvester Stallone being in a remake. And the premise for that one sounded more like uh, a sequel to Cobra, because it was about he played an ex-cop who gets tired of arresting these people and the judges let him go. So he quits the cop force and becomes a vigilante. Um, so, you know, that sounds nothing like the original Death Wish. And I read the script uh, to the remake of Death Wish before the movie was made. Mm. And I didn't like the script. Again, it was like they just used nothing from the novel. They just like used this premise of a vigilante and created uh, a completely different story. Yeah. I always wish somebody had gone back to that original novel and made that movie. Right. I wish they had done that, like maybe for made it made it for Netflix or a cable TV where they didn't have to worry about being too commercial, where they could have made something very unique. So yeah. I did not like that script to the Death Wish remake. And I'm not a Bruce Willis fan, certainly not a Bruce yeah, Willis man. fan the way he is now. Yeah. And um uh, so I didn't bought and I didn't like the I saw the trailer for the death wish remake and they had, I love ACDC and, but I, you know, they play, I'm playing back in black. I'm like, you guys don't get it. This is not. Uh... And then I read, so oh, I read an interview with uh, Eli Roth. He was saying, um, we put Bruce Willis in a hoodie because in the first one, he walks around with a sailor cap on and we wanted to pay homage to that. I'm like, wait a minute. He wears a sailor cap in the second one. You didn't even have the time. You didn't even sit down and watch the first one. You know, if you think he wears a sailor cap in the first one, you have no relevance to the series. So, yeah, yeah, I have not and will not be watching that remake. No, I have nothing against it. I understand. I mean, obviously, some people who are friends of mine who are fans of the Death Wish series liked the remake. So I have nothing against it, but I'm not going to watch it. No. 
Yeah, to me, it played both sides. So I think what intrigued me initially with Eli Roth behind it was I was thinking if you're going to play up kind of, you know, the hobo with a shotgun style over the top, crazy movie where there isn't any try attempt to be relevant or, you know, interesting, but it tried to play into that with like the back and black and some of the one-liners and things. And then on the other side, it tried to play into the serious, you know, commentary on Chicago violence, you know? So like it was trying to do both, but ended up doing neither one super, super well. Now one of the least charismatic leading men you could put in a movie, which one of the selling points of death wish is Bronson, who's extremely watchable and magnetic. Um, But it raises the question, could a remake be done? Should a remake be done? And if so, you know, obviously Sylvester Stallone type, I don't think makes a lot of sense. Um, what ki- type of casting and and style would you like to see uh, in a remake? And if you maybe dream cast or dream director that you would put on it. Well, well, he's passed away now, but when I was thinking about um, what would be good for a remake would be Philip Seymour Hoffman. Wow. Yeah. Actually, that's a great, great, yeah, great you, casting. Because if you read the novel, he perfectly looks like uh, he... Um, perfectly fits that description. So wow. I would have, well, he's passed away now. We can't do that. But I thought if they had made the original novel set again in the 1970s with Philip Seymour Hoffman, that would have been a, um, that would have been something to see. So and I'm, trying to think, I'm trying to think if I can think of somebody now who might uh, uh, be good if we're going to try to look like the original novel. Um, That's a phenomenal, uh, that by itself is a phenomenal choice. And I think it, it does have what Bronson I think had by the time he was doing the death wish movies is he, I mean, Bronson, when you go back to like, you know, once upon a time, you know, like he's this very physical looking, but by death wish, he was already starting to look like a more normal. I don't know if you could describe Charles Bronson as looking normal, but a very just average looking person. And I think Philip Seymour Hoffman would have been an interesting versus Bruce Willis, who still looks like an action star, at least on a, on a poster. That's a really interesting now I'm bummed we're not going to see that. <laughs> I think that's a good, good cat. Yeah, I don't. I don't know now. I don't. I think the thing is, once you start getting the budgets that a movie with this property would have, it's hard to say like that they would take the risk casting somebody who's not a well-known movie like action star. Right. You know, I feel like they'd try to shove a Bruce Willis or a Jason Statham or somebody in that in that role. Um, Neeson did it well. I mean, he had the military background and taken, but he still. I think played that that emotional side of it really well in in those films, but yeah, that would yeah. be. I like um, uh, yeah, I like Liam Neeson. In fact, during that era when he was doing Taken and um, uh, the other movies in that era, he was probably the closest we had to uh, Bronson because again, yeah. he was about the same age and uh, physically believable. So yeah. Neeson during that era was a good. Uh, in fact, th- that might have been a good one. It might have been yeah. a good. Well, I don't know. Like I said, I, I would like to go back to the novel where the guy was a stocky, exactly. you know, unassuming. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And premise wise, I mean, yeah, it's just a, it's just a very tricky. I definitely think there's something you could do in it, though. I mean, with the Me Too era and, and things that we're in now, I think there's a there's a level to which you could handle it, but. Like you said, I'd like to see a smaller budget approach to it than than what we got. Just what we got just was disappointing. It was disappointing by itself. And then going back and watching the films and becoming obsessively interested in Bronson and the Death Wish films, it's it was a bummer <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Um I am I'm curious. So that the end of your book, you talk about Death Wish Five 
walking away, you know, and saying, call me if you need me. And it's this very, it's this cool ending to the franchise, regardless of your thoughts on five. I think it's a cool send off for Bronson, but you know, death wish six was planned without Bronson. Um, was that purely a money thing on the side of Canon at that point or. Yeah, they kind of did, um, you know, Bronson had a multiple, a multi picture deal with Canon and yeah. then Canon kind of uh, folded and Menachem Golan came up with his own company, 21st Century. So that's when he brought Bronson back in to refill that uh, contract. And they had some different ideas. After Death Wish 5, there was the, they were maybe going to make a, a Death Wish 6 with Bronson or make a Death Wish 6 where he appears briefly and uh, passes on the baton to a new vigilante. And obviously it was a case, um, but and again, partly money. I think one of the things was with when Cannon was making those movies, they didn't buy the Death Wish rights outright. Each time they made a sequel, they had to um, purchase the rights again. Do you see what I'm saying? To make right. a new yeah. sequel. They didn't buy the rights and then be able to, in perpetuity, make a new Death Wish movie right. as many as they wanted. Right. What would you have liked to see if they had done the Death Wish 6, kind of like the remake? What would you have liked to see if Bronson had come back and they'd done one more? Would you have just liked them to do one more over-the-top crazy movie? Or would you, is there somewhere story-wise you would have wanted it to go? It's hard to say. I mean, of course, at this point, that series was such a uh, – so commercial. You know, they there was no way anybody could have gone and made anything – low key or gritty or really dramatic. It would have to have had all the excessive violence and uh, flamboyant villains and things like that. So I don't know if they could have done anything different than what they did. So they would probably have to do another, um, maybe put a younger guy in there as his, again, we're going back to like the mechanic remake. He would have to have instead of a, in the mechanic, he's a hitman who has a young apprentice. I guess by that point, they would have to make the death wish would be he's a vigilante with a young apprentice. He finds a, a younger guy whose uh, wife or daughter had just been assaulted and he mentors that guy. I guess that's the only way they could have gone with it. Right. And, and got it made. Yeah. Well, the, the series, I, I think we both agree is underappreciated, but it definitely had an impact on movies in general and you know mm-hmm. it was it was in the early period of those 1970s exploitation revenge kind of films um what are some of the the impacts or ripples you see as a result of the death wish movies like when you're looking at cinema from you know the beginning of death wish releasing onward what impact do you see those those movies having and uh, what are some of the i guess the best uh influences that it had on on movies kind of moving forward yeah uh you know one thing about um the death wish of course it was so the original death wish was somewhat of a low budget movie again shot uh on actual locations yeah um a small cast in terms of how many major characters there are um no big explosions or you know special effects or things like that so it could easily be duplicated so we got a lot of those films uh, that were like uh, ripoffs of them. Or some of them are quite good. I don't want to say a ripoff, but um, influenced by them. You know, we had Ms. 45, which fantastic. of course I love that yeah. movie. Yeah. That's a fantastic movie, which again, changed the uh, protagonist to a woman. But again, it was also shot entirely on the streets of New York. So that one there 
uh, was one that was definitely inspired by it. Uh, there was the original, uh, the ex- uh, the Exterminator. I mm. love that movie too. Um, that was another one and shot entirely in New York on actual locations, obviously heavily inspired by Death Wish. And then there was um, uh, Vigilante uh, made by uh, Bill Lustig starring uh, Robert Forster. That was another mm. one where again shot uh, in New York. Um, heavily influenced by death wish. So those are probably my three favorites of the ones that were obvious uh, influenced by, by death wish. Yeah. Miss, Miss 45 is a phenomenal, phenomenal movie. Like that's, right. that's, I think it's an all timer personally. Um, I'm curious. Um, the movies had that big impact. Uh, one of the things you mentioned was, you know, Bronson never really got the respect. I think he deserved within, within, Hollywood. I mean, within just cinema in general. And you mentioned, you know, there were other actors who had the same thing, very successful careers like John Wayne never got the acclaim as actors, you know, and it's one thing that doesn't, you know, cause I, I enjoy, so my person, I, I enjoy a lot of B movies. I enjoy movies that, you know, I understand not being good, or I understand the acting might not be good, but Bronson, I I've tried to see the issues, you know, like, but I think he's a phenomenal actor, you know, like, and I, I look at it. Why do you think he, he missed a lot of the acclaim that I think, you know, that you think he should have deserved? Well, I think part of it was, you know, he became a star so late in life. Hmm. And one problem is when you become a star that late in life, you want to um, keep that momentum going. You don't want to do anything too experimental. And the, the interesting thing is he became a star in the late sixties, over in Europe, uh, films like Farewell Friend, yeah. Rider on the Rain, those movies weren't even released in the United States initially. So it took a, not only did it take a long time for him to be a, a star, but it took him even longer time to be a star in the United States. Yeah. So he really didn't, uh, wasn't in the position to take too many chances, in other words. And again, if somebody's going to pay your fee, they want to get that fee back and more. So they're going to offer you commercial type movies. Yeah. Some interesting stuff he did do in the 70s after he became a big star. He did a movie called Hard Times, written and directed by Walter Hill. Mm-hmm. Takes place um, in New Orleans during the, during the Depression. He plays a bare-fisted boxer. He's fantastic in that. Uh, him did another movie called From Noon Till Three, which is an offbeat uh, dark comedy western. Uh, the role was originally off to Jack Nicholson, so that shows you what a different type role it is. Yeah. So he tried something different like that. So he was trying to do some different stuff. And then, of course, once we get to Death Wish 2, he had pretty much um, uh, he was no longer gotten that many offers. So it almost like Cannon made him an offer he couldn't refuse. Then he ended up doing that uh, multi-picture deals with Cannon where he couldn't work for anybody but them. And then we're talking, you know, this is a man still in great shape, but, you know, he's in his his 60s now. So. You know, and and as much as I like the Death Wish sequels, of course, I, they in many ways hurt the reputation of not only the original Death Wish, but also the reputation of Charles Bronson, where yeah. people just see him as this, uh, uh, you know, just a brutal, rough killer in these silly, over-the-top exploitation movies. Yeah, yeah, they definitely shade him. It, it's it's the Simpsons parody because essentially Bronson was parodying himself in the in the latter death wish movies and they were parodying the type of movie that that was right. um yeah it's it's it would have been interesting and i, and I still think you know it, it was something when i was watching the later death wish movies i kind of wish he had gotten to work with like a, a tarantino you know as one of those cameos like kind of 
kind of what happened with Kurt Russell or what happened with, you know, um, um, John Travolta, you know, these, these actors who people just forget how good they are. And then they get put into this small, strange role and people just remember, you know, I, I wish he would have had something like that near the end of his career. Cause he was still good, you know, and he still had that presence. Even, even death wish five were like the, some of the stunts he's doing are unbelievable at that point. He just had a great persona that I wish, I wish there would have been something in the you know nineties better than, you know, family of cops and, and those, those types of movies that he ended up doing. But you know. one interesting thing is he actually, um, uh, you know, Bronson ultimately later years had all Alzheimer's. And of course, may I think that was actually affecting some of the choices he made mm. later in life. You know, he actually was offered um, the role in City Slickers. Billy Crystal offered him the role in City Slickers that was played by Jack Palance. Wow, really? Well, so that would have been incredible to see Bronson in that. Bronson turned it down. He didn't, he said he didn't want to die in his movie. So I think. If he had had, I think probably if somebody had sat down and talked with Bronson Moore and said, look, this will be a good pot for you, that would have, I think, changed things. Because what Jack Palance uh, got a Academy Award for that mm-hmm. role. And then, of course, gave Palance a boost in his later uh, years playing different yeah. pots. So it would be interesting what would have happened if Bronson had accepted um, that role. Of course, then yeah. on the other hand, you know, he did play that Bronson did play that supporting part in the Indian Runner, which was a um, uh, Sean Penn film, played a yeah. serious dramatic role in that, which did nothing for Bronson. You know, he got some good reviews, but it didn't lead to him being authored any more dramatic roles and more high profile or more prestigious production. So you never can tell, you know, we, we do this speculation. Who knows yeah. what would have happened? Well, it's hard too when you're looking at the concept of a movie. Which one's going to be the Academy Award winning movie? You know, I can't, right. I, I can't imagine looking at those two scripts and trying to figure out which one's going to blow up your career. Right. Um, you know, kind of kind of wrapping up, I, I try to ask a couple quick questions just to get a sense of of you know what your thoughts are on some of these topics. And first, I got to ask: you've covered Bronson, Death Wish onward, you know, uh, with with your books. Uh, which Bronson's loose is absolutely phenomenal. Um, it's it's a really just great piece of history. It's an easy read and and just I think for anybody who's binging the Death Wish series or hasn't yet, it it'll make you appreciate that franchise in an even deeper way. Um, have you considered going back and covering Bronson prior to Death Wish and, and covering some of his extensive filmography there? Sure, absolutely. Um, I did. Um... You know, after I did my Bronson's Loose book, then I did Bronson's Loose again, which is kind of like a sequel, covered most of the movies he made after Death Wish. You know, so I interviewed uh, several dozen people for that. And I'm very fortunate because a lot of these people I've talked to for both my books, including, of course, Michael Winter, have passed on. So I'm very grateful that I was able to capture these people's stories while they were still around. And I'm just now working on, I think it's my 13th um, audio commentary. Mm. You know, nowadays, most people, they don't want to read. They just want to listen. So I get offered a lot of these audio commentaries. So I've done a lot of the earlier ones. I did. I just did uh, Violent City, an Italian movie he made. And I've done a commentary for The Mechanic. So I've done a lot of the earlier ones before Death Wish. So to answer your question, yes, I do want to continue to cover his stuff he made before Death Wish. You know, of course, one problem is, unfortunately, a lot of these people have passed on. So for a lot of these movies, there's really nobody I can interview. I have to rely really on like secondary sources and things like that. Sure, so. sure. 
if you could see any of Bronson's films get remade, um, because obviously remakes Death Wish is bad as the the remake is, and I say that as someone who appreciates Eli Roth in with a, a lot of his movies, I think he's in some ways underrated and and by some overrated. But um, you know, it it does bring attention on the original films and it gets people going back and revisiting them. So if you could see one of Bronson's films, any of his filmography remade. Uh, to kind of shine some more light on that specific story, which one would you pick? It's hard to say. Um, of course, most of them, they weren't officially remade. A lot of them were just ripped off, you know, so they yeah. make them over again anyway. Um, oh, boy. I'd just say, I would say maybe, um, ah, oh boy. Maybe, I would say maybe Breakout. I like that movie, but it had some problems that stopped it from reaching its true potential. Yeah. Uh, Breakout is a, based on a true story about um, a man's imprisoned in a Mexican prison. Bronson plays this. A helicopter pilot who breaks him out with this with this crazy um, plot to break him out. That movie had some budget problems, which kind of prevented it from reaching its potential. So I think that one, especially if they go back to the more of the true story, that could be a a really solid movie that would bring some attention to the original, which would bring some more attention to other Bronson type movies. Gotcha. So gotcha. I would I would say that. Yeah. Gotcha. For someone who's reading. Uh a book like Bronson's Loose, they're seeing your love for the Death Wish films in Bronson. What's a movie that your, you know, readers would be surprised to know that you enjoy? I'm kind of, I'm a huge uh, Disney fan, you know, the live action ones, probably like uh, Pollyanna. I love that movie. Huh. 1964, with, uh, The Little Girl. Uh, I love that movie. Um, uh, I like a lot of the melodramas, for example, Peyton Place. It's one mm. of my favorite movies. Uh so I like a lot of the um, a lot of those women type pitches, I guess, ones that when you would think more women would like that a that a guy who likes action movies probably wouldn't like. So yeah. there's stuff like that that I'm into that I'm interested in also. Yeah. I'm always curious um, hearing those. Yeah. And I'm trying to think what else. I, I, I guess that would be it. Yeah. So if you're listening tonight, you can do a double feature of Pollyanna and death wish too. It'll be, yeah. <laughs> it'll be a very jarring experience. Um, what do you think is the best decade of film history? Oh, that's hard to say. There's so much good stuff out there. Of course, the stuff that I actually study myself is probably the, uh, the 1970s, the stuff that I actually not just watch, but dig into the informa- information, see what was made back then. Um, I also like the 1940s a lot. I like a lot of those, uh, the film noir type movies. I like a lot of the uh, male personality actors from back then. Uh, Alan Ladd is my second favorite actor after Bronson. And I like uh, Bogart, of course, and Cagney, George Raft, a lot of the um, uh, Randolph Scott, a lot of the, a lot of the people who are like Bronson, meaning their uh, persona, you know, you can teach people how to act, but you can't teach them a persona. You know, people are born stars, yeah. you know, once they step in front of the camera. It's not, you know, uh, as you talked about, we talked about earlier with uh, Bronson, 
when you see him like for the first time, you're really intrigued about everything about him and say, hey, who is this guy? So I like a lot of the actors like that who are, I guess, the personality type actors. Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful way to put it. And that's what makes it tricky. And that's why I want to ask you. I ask everybody who comes on, you know, if you had the green light to remake any film, what would you choose and why? And it is hard, you know, in this conversation specifically, thinking about it before we hit before we hit record, it's a tricky one because for Bronson, it's not the performance, you know, it, that is a piece of it. But for Bronson, it's the it's literally the glint in his eyes, the way that he carries himself. It is that, you know, you described in your book that almost this wild animal. Like it's, it's like, you don't even know what you're going to get when he comes onto the, under the screen. And it, it is, it's hard to imagine recasting someone like that. You know, you can imagine recast. It's almost like Sylvester Stallone and Rocky, you know, like who else could be Rocky, but him, you know, it's, it's such a unique, a unique presence on, on screen. Um, the, the last question I want to ask you is simply where can people connect with you? Um, I know that, You've, obviously they need to check out your books, which there'll be links in the show notes for them to check those out. Uh, but if people want to follow more of your work, check out some of the the thoughts you're putting out regarding films, where's the best place to do that? Sure. I have a Facebook page that's called Bronson's Loose Again. Bronson's Loose Again. I eventually, I first started it when my second book came out to promote that. And then it's kind of turned into, I, I use it as an announcement to, um, Whenever I do a commentary track or something like that, I use that to announce stuff. And then I also do it. I'll occasionally put a little some articles on there whenever I have time to write or some trivia about Bronson. So you can find me on Bronson's Loose Again. Perfect. Uh, you can find me on the Facebook page, Bronson's Loose Again. Awesome. I didn't know that existed. So I'm going to be checking that out right after this. But uh, okay. thank you so much for for doing this. Thank you so much for writing uh, this book. Like you mentioned, uh, I'm part of the Bronson cult. You know, I, I'm fascinated by his career and being able to dive into such a well-researched book about it has been amazing. And I, uh, I hope you'll keep writing on the subject because it's it's fascinating. Right. Well, thanks for having me on the show, Eric. In fact, um, it's important. It's always good when I do these things because I see uh, a younger audience uh, discovering Bronson. And that's how mm-hmm. things continue, you know, mm-hmm. when younger people describe it or discover, for example, um, you have an ACDC shirt on. And for example, ACDC or Led Zeppelin, every day an 11 year old kid hears Led Zeppelin for the first time. So he starts buying more Led Zeppelin stuff. He just a younger audience discovers it. So every day, hopefully, uh, a young guy is going to see a Charles Bronson movie and say, wow, that's a cool guy and start uh, continuing the Bronson cult. Cause I see a lot of, I go to a lot of these movie conventions. I see young kids with Bronson t-shirts and some even have no. Bronson tattoos. <laughs> that's fantastic that the Bronson cult is, is going on. It's alive and well, and hopefully this episode brought some new members into it today. Uh, But thank you so much for joining me on the show and for everybody listening, be sure to head over to the link in the show notes, grab a copy of Bronson's loose or Bronson is loose again, and uh, head over to the Facebook page by the same name. Paul, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Eric. Yep. Thanks for listening to the Film School Podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, don't forget to leave a five-star review and hit subscribe so you won't miss a single episode.